she never funny fella. Running amidst the trees. Who's there? I said as I stood in my head. And nobody answered me. This is Bruce. This is John. And this is Blix. Welcome to another edition of Fringeworthy the Podcast. A little short bit of news. We now have a fan group on Facebook. So if you're on Facebook and you want to keep track of various things, we can also put a schedule up as well of, of any like, game events or the places we're going to go to demo games. Look for Fringeworthy fans on uh, Facebook. We have some more reader mail today, so let's get to it. John? So, yeah, we got actually got several questions from some folks, uh, including our favorite questioner, Jay Haley, again. Let's go to the first question, which is from our Facebook. That's from Chuck Enzenauer. Are Meller capable of fully duplicating non-carbon-based life forms? Well, first, it depends on what you mean by fully duplicating. Yeah, because Mellers don't fully duplicate. They can simulate it. If a Meller is has been that person for a while, he could simulate internal organs if he had to, but only if he had to. But for the most part, he's, it's just a surface simulation at that point of, of the person he's imitating. Yeah, a Meller is going to change its body to be able to provide the structural support necessary to you know, look like the creature it's impersonating. It's going to be able to support its ocular or sensory type devices that are on the creature in wherever spots they're supposed to be. So if the creature has eight eyes, it's going to have eight eyes, even though the Meller normally only has two eyes. So it's able to reproduce a lot of things beyond just looking like it. I would say that if it has eight eyes, it's not going to have only two of them working and the rest of them are going to be fake because sooner or later it's going to need, if those eyes go all the way around his head and it's really blind in the back, that's not going to work out too well. That begs another question, but I'll ask it after we take care of uh, Chuck's questions. Chuck's really question is about non-carbon-based life forms. Well, if you're talking like silica life forms, one of the problems with a silica life form is that they operate at much higher temperatures than we would normally consider livable. It would take a special meller to actually survive in the environment that silicon life forms would live in. Or you have more caustic life forms, like say they live in a uh, chlorine environment, or even, heaven forbid, a fluorine environment. These are places that are toxic and nasty, and you would have to have a special built meller for those operations. Now, whether that those mellers have become infected or not, we don't know. That's a good question. John, I don't think that's a question. The reason that the Meller are infected is because their brains have been rewritten. That's going to be the same inside. I mean, their wetware may change, but their programming, their, in a sense, their intelligence is going to be the same. It's quite possible these Meller in these odd environments may actually be safe. 
they may be still the old Meller because, well, the infected Meller can't survive in those environments to infect them. Right. I agree with you there, John. A Meller that's coming from another world where it's like our world would not be able to exist in, let's say, the uh, underwater pressure vent of a volcano if they had some kind of an intelligent culture down there. They literally would be physically isolated from being infected. Let's look at a, another type of non-carbon-based creature. Now, actually, I don't know if they're completely non-carbon-based, but I think this is still in the spirit of the question. When Alien came out, they were listed as a biomechanical creature. Now, they could still be kind of carbon-based, but I don't think they're carbon-based in the same way we're thinking of it. They actually have, like, metallic components to their body. Could a Meller become like an alien? I would say yes. Yeah. Remember the whole purpose of the Meller. They were designed not just to be able to live on human-type worlds. They were designed to be able to go and uplift intelligent races on every possible alternate Earth so that all the Tamelorn in any form they might hold would be able to join in the great you know, kumbaya of the Tamelorn. So if you have a machine intelligence world like the Matrix, I would imagine that Mellers could potentially look like one of the smaller machines. Well, there would be truly a superficial thing. <laughs> they just have to be able to jack in. But more directly to your question, Alex, or your answer, when we talk about special Meller, it doesn't mean that they've created some kind of a alternate version of the Meller with a completely different physiology. The Tameller were masters of biomechanics, so mm-hmm. it's quite possible for them to create a symbiotic shell that would go around a Meller that would give them all the protections and whatever it was that they needed to be able to survive at the at those depths and in those pressures or in that kind of an environment and provide the same kind of camouflage just with a meller kind of inside running it. It would actually probably be conceivable that that could actually even be built into the meller, that they could metamorphosis into that. Perhaps they transform into that so that their outer shell becomes so that it can survive in space or so that it can survive in super deep environments or environments that would normally be too hot for them given some time they'd metamorphosis into that but then they would be more in line with that type of environment i imagine if you had a meller that took the time to acclimate himself to an, an environment that would normally be too hot for him that he would actually take damage from it on a regular basis but he he would transform given exposure to it transform into a creature that could survive that if you hit him with some kind of cold that would normally not hurt them then perhaps he would become vulnerable to it just like the creature that he's taken the shape of because i imagine if he takes on the abilities like for example you were saying the eyes in the back of the head or uh, taking on wings like a bird I, I would imagine that if he takes on the physiology of a creature that is susceptible to something that he would also be susceptible to it while he's in that form uh, am i correct Yes, but it would all come down to when the Meller's cornered and he turns back to his natural form, is he going to be able to survive? Ooh, that's a good question. Okay, you, that, that's one reason yeah. why I was suggesting maybe there's a symbiotic bioengineered shell that he could live inside of that would still be able to allow him to use all of his Meller camouflage abilities, but at the same time, if he did suddenly have to revert himself back to a Meller surrounded by a shell, in this particular case, he wouldn't suddenly disintegrate because he can't take the temperature anymore. So this really would be a special type of Meller, one that, or a Meller that has a special device or, or right. has been equipped in a special way. 
And there's no reason why they, there can't be some kind of super science involved here, too. I mean, oh, sure. There, there could be some kind of undetectable force field that, that negates all that pressure and all that temperature and, mm-hmm. and, and then somehow you know, handles the, the acid sea in which he swims. Whatever it takes, I'm sure that the Smellers were fully capable of, of granting that to their Meller children. They cared that much about them. But it's kind of hard to answer that question because we know that they could go anywhere they needed to go and they could do anything that they needed to do. But whether or not they can do it with what they are essentially decanted with, I can't really say that. We do know, for example, that there are Meller with immunities, things mm-hmm. where they literally can ignore huge amounts of damage, where fire doesn't hurt them. Now, in the D20 modern version, we just give them a resistance. In the original book, they were literally immune to all fire damage. And so they could literally stand in, well, I wouldn't say the sun, but they could stand in lava, and they'd say, oh, this is very sticky. <laughs> so I guess they have quite a huge range of adaption. So the Mela that would be using technology... If he were to go in another world, he couldn't just duplicate himself. That would be his limiting factor. He couldn't just go to go to another go to that environment and duplicate himself and create another version of himself that could survive in that environment. He'd have to actually have extra pieces of that technology, or maybe yes. even the technology can regenerate itself over time, so he could break off a piece and it would regrow. You know, the same way the Mellers regenerate. Since the Tamellern are masters of bioengineering, that would make perfect sense. Right. Okay. That, that any kind of bio device would also have the ability to spawn itself as necessary. I like that. So that was Chuck's first question. His next one is, it's about size. How well can Mellers duplicate creatures as big as the uh, Blizzness or bigger? As you mentioned, it's a, it's a quadruped that weighs considerably more than even a great Meller. So, okay, we have a blizz, you know, Miller, and there's a Blizzniz, which is, what, six foot at the shoulder? About half a ton or so? <laughs> Could a Miller turn into one of those? Yeah, but it'll take some time doing it. We agreed that the limitation initially of the transfer would be he couldn't uh, turn into something that was more than double his size. So if he was reproducing somebody, uh, a creature, he'd be able to reproduce an immature version, a child version of a blizzness or a, an adolescent version of a blizzness that could be exactly the same appearance of the one he's trying to to change, turn into. But then he'd have to take additional time to consume additional mass in order to bring himself up to the full size and therefore the full appearance of the creature he's trying to impersonate. Yeah, and I think we agreed on setting a time limit at about 24 hours. If he consumed his weight every 24 hours, he could double his size every 24 hours. And given a few days, that adds up quickly because he would go from 180 to 360. Uh, and then he would add 360 to that the next day or could if right. he ate that much matter. So you'd be twice, four times, eight times, 16 times his original size. So it would take him several days. But, yes, he could become a sperm uh, whale that was intelligent. Yeah. Right. Or a giant T-Rex. And basically, but he'll t- his initial shape change will take right. only 30 minutes. So in 30 minutes, he's an immature juvenile version of whoever he just uh, took you know, took a genetic right. sample from or just killed. Though I shake the hands of a Miller who kills a T-Rex. That would be something. <laughs> and then don't forget about the shedding. You know, he can shed off 50% of right. his weight per go. And 
uh, I guess we're in agreement on, you know, that's every 24 hours as well, the same way he can double. In the previous edition, they were allowed to shed up to 75% of their mass in an emergency. And this makes sense because if you were something that was a T-Rex, you change into a Meller that's T-Rex size, you may no longer have the proper uh, internal structure to support all that weight. So it makes sense that you'd suddenly just peel a lot of that off, drop in size. Now you're at a size that you could actually support your, your mass and then continue to uh, do whatever you're going to do, probably run over and take a big bite out of it. Or run away. This depends, you know. Usually when a Meller's cornered, it attacks. So, and I'm referring, of course, to the infected Meller. If a Meller has time and knows he needs to go back down, he can probably just reverse the process he just went through every day. He can decrease his size by 50% and go back down to the juvenile size where he can then reconvert back to a normal 180-pound thereabouts Meller again. One more question from Chuck. Can Mellers become a slarg who are designed to carry the counter gene for the, for the Meller virus? They can look like a slarg. But they don't get the ability. The genetic programming's there. It's a response to threat and what it was supposed to do. Now, a, a Meller, you know, it has the memories, but it doesn't have the motivation of a slarg. It would never desire to bite itself and therefore turn itself, <laughs> cure well, itself. The thing is, it wouldn't have to bite itself because it's just absorbed the genetic programming from touching or even taking a bite out of the slarg. So that means it now has the genetic programming. So what's it doing? Isolating it so it doesn't actually have, that's it. It, it. It's isolating that bit of code that would actually make him become normal. Well, if you think about it, like venom, are, are snakes immune to their own venom? Could a cobra bite itself and poison itself? I think they can bite themselves, especially the ones that are more caustic than neurological. Right, like the, yeah. the blood yeah. thing venoms. So, I mean, you could look at it as he would take the form of the slarg, and if he took on his genetic abilities, he might be able to bite another Meller and cure him, but he wouldn't because he wouldn't want to. And it's not going to cure him of it because he's not biting himself. When the slarg bites a, a, a Meller, it injects it with a, a special genetic code that activates the reversal process back to a normal Meller. It doesn't say that they're contagious. It says they have to deliver it by a bite specifically. It's not touch a Meller. The thing is, it's like you have a big program with an antivirus program built inside. Another virus program comes along and tries to eat it. Well, it activates the antivirus program because it's part of the other program. It's going to read it. It's going to process it. I mean, just because I read a DVD of a serial killer, my computer doesn't become a serial killer. What you're saying is that it's reading in what's usually called in the, in the uh, computing world a sandbox, where it's safe. It can just read the code. If anything nasty in there, well, it's in the sandbox, and the sandbox doesn't translate to outside of the, outside of the sandbox. Well, I think another thing that's important is that it specifically says through a bite. It doesn't say through a scratch or through a touch or through being eaten. It says through a bite. So that must mean that it was designed to only be delivered through a bite. Exactly. So I guess it's conceivable if the Meller ate the slarg's mouth, he could infect himself. I wouldn't even guarantee that because, as you said, it is a specific behavioral response. Well, in the case of a snake, it's got a venom reservoir, various glands in your mouth. They only produce the enzymes when they're supposed to. They're not constantly producing them. They're, they're not dripping out amylase to turn starch into sugar. Right. It only happens when starch is put in your mouth. 
This is only going to happen whenever a slarg bites a meller. It's not going to happen if you eat the slarg's mouth. It's not going to happen if the meller eats the slarg, period. There's only two reasons a meller would eat a slarg, and one would be to eat its brain and its spinal column to impersonate it. And secondly, is just ingest mass in order to uh, be able to change its shape more effectively. Uh, it's designed, as you said, John, to treat other creatures' genetic code as information. And it processes itself within its yep. own biological brain to be able to say, well, this is what I need in order to impersonate it. I'm not going to become it. I'm not going to take in its mannerisms. I'm not going to take in its drives. I'm just going to take in whatever I need to do to be able to look like it and to be able to understand it well enough to impersonate it so I can do my job, which originally was to blend into the culture and to uh, help understand the creatures it was with so it could raise them up, help them raise up and become members of the Commonwealth. Now, as we've been talking about this, I've been thinking this through as well and realize that like you said, like our sweat glands with our saliva glands, that's produced uh, at will. So in this case, what we're seeing is that the genetic fix for, for the Miller is like a binary poison. It's mm -hmm. got to be put together and built. So the code's all there for all the bits to make the thing, but the actual code itself doesn't come to, into effect until it's been assembled and inserted and then then injected into the Meller. So yeah, the, the code's all there to build the code that fixes him. So he's safe that way all, as well. And then let's not forget that the slug were built by the Kegak. So they probably built it that way on yeah. purpose. They made sure that it was made that way because the smarter way to make it would have been to be an infectious virus that all the slugger has to do is touch them. Right. Or get bitten by them or anything coming looking at them. Another example would be, okay, you go over and you touch a female animal in order to become it. It doesn't mean that when you turn into it, just because females are capable of lactating, you're not suddenly exhibiting condition that you're pregnant or you're lactating. Unless, of course, that would be where it was at that time. The, the meller would be able to produce the appropriate appearance that it was lactating and all that stuff. Initially, it's a superficial appearance. Whatever was coming out of those lactating glands is probably not milk. This actually reminds me of something, a story that was in one of the uh, Infinite Crossroads. Uh, was it? He was his name, Sonny, the Miller. He got a woman pregnant. That's a huge mystery that was put into it. No one knows how that it was even possible. All they know is it happened, and they produced twin boys. And they're expecting big things from them. <laughs> it's one of those things where uh, the GM gets to basically have a lot of fun in the game, and we want to encourage that. We yeah. want to say, hey, if we didn't write it down, it doesn't mean you can't do it. Yeah. Yes, Meller apparently, according to this story, if they're an old Meller, we don't know about any other kind, but if they're an old Meller, they can actually reproduce with another member of the species they're impersonating. Well, that could also fall into like a special case, too, the way you have immune, Mellors immune to certain things. Maybe he was a special Meller. Maybe he was. He certainly was a special Meller as far as the story was concerned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, this oh, yeah. woman that he's spending time with, she knows what he is. But he's so sweet and gentle that she fell in love with him anyways. So, you know, that's pretty special. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's, that's Mellor's uh, nailed down so far. Much as you can nail down on Meller, it's like nailing down Jello. But uh. <laughs> but if you have any more Meller questions, keep them coming. We we like to answer those. They they're very thought provoking. 
Thank you very much. You're listening to the Fringeworthy Podcast. Our next question is from General Tristan. Thank you, Station on Korea. It's alien design. Uh, when it comes right down to it, uh, how do you design your aliens? There's two approaches to that for, for most games. One, I call it the Star Trek approach, which is guys in suits with funny eyebrows and uh, nose ridges. They look weird, but they basically are like guys from the Bronx or someplace else. And then there's aliens. Real aliens. Watching several uh, shows about alien life on Discovery Channel and the Science Channel, one thing a lot of uh, exobiologists complain about is that most aliens you see in the movies aren't aliens. They're just people in suits because they have recognizable faces. A true alien would not have a recognizable face. You would not have something there you would call a face because it's an alien face. Even if they have something like that. What's interesting about our random tables that we've had in the game, which we pretty much have kept from version to version, is that you can design totally alien-looking aliens. But how does that affect their culture, their life, their... You know, if you have something that has eight legs, four arms, it's on a quadrilateral symmetry. So basically, you know, it's this weird-looking thing, and his mouth is at the top of his head and stuff like that. What kind of culture does it have? My answer to that one is whatever culture you want to give it. Let me take a stab at it, John. We know that some of the scientific discoveries that were made were made because some scientists saw a difference in color when light hit a solution of a chemical. Or you look at a rock and you see flecks of something in it. So you had a race of creatures that saw everything by sonar. Maybe they wouldn't be able to go down certain routes of chemistry. Maybe they wouldn't be able to detect the differences but at the same time is that a, a race that had super, super sensitive taste buds or smell might be able to actually smell the difference in chemicals. They could literally tell sodium from potassium from water, you know, just by smell alone, that they'd be able to analyze things that way. And so they might actually be far more advanced in chemistry than we are because of their differences in their sensory things. And so that's one way that a race that's different in senses would be react differently as far as their technology is concerned. You might see more of a emphasis on one side or another. But do their boys stand in the corner and whistle at all the girls as they walk on by? Well, uh, if that gets the girls' attention, <laughs> I imagine they would. Really comes down to what can be imagined. If your group and your game master is good at imagining really off the wall things, creatures with unsymmetrical parts, like five tentacled creatures with three heads and bat wings or whatever, if you can imagine that and you can creative enough to go into how they would be different, you know, taking into account that they have different senses or whatever, that's great. And if your group can do that, then then I think go for it. But you just need to feel out your group. If you know that there's going to be several people in your group, say more than half the people in your group, who are just not going to get it and are not going to ever play along with it, then you probably want to go the Star Trek route where it's really people with funny shapes, horns on their head or bumps or ridges or, or you know, the skin is blue or they got antennas or whatever. I've read some authors who hate that. You know, they say, well, why should you know, aliens not be truly alien? And that's fun in, a, in fiction and, and in movies where you can actually 
take the time to have script writers and scientists, you know, that you can question and, and, and all that. But this is really, this is a game and we only have so much time that we can spend on this stuff and we're not professionals. This isn't our life per se. So thinking of all those variables can't get to be too much in, in a lot of ways. And I don't think it's an unfair thing to say that it's quite possible that the shape that we have is the reason why we became sentient. It's not completely impossible to say, well, the reason why we developed prefrontal lobes and became thinking creatures is because we stand upright and because we have opposable thumbs and we, because we are what we are. That's not a crazy concept. It's not, it's not out of the park. You can go either direction you want. You're just going to have to feel out your players. Do it any way you want to. As for guidelines, that's tough. I mean, it's a, it's a big subject. Oh, yeah. I mean, alien culture right. is alien culture. And it's alien for a reason. And, and what you're going to run into in a lot of cases is that the aliens will do things that to them make perfect sense, but to your players will be frustrated because it makes no sense whatsoever. A great way to fail them out is uh, see if they've ever read Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey. That's one of the few sh- stories out there, science fiction stories, that has fairly alien aliens in it. It takes a while for you to go through the entire book, through the entire story, and realize, okay, this is why he's doing this, this is why he's doing that. Otherwise, it's like, what the heck is that thing doing? Jump into the air and landing on his nose every time. That makes no sense. <laughs> you got to ask yourself, what's going to make a good story? And if you can make an alien alien... And that makes a good story for your players, not just something for you to say, wow, I made this alien really alien and aren't I cool, then great, do it. You know, if the players are enjoying dealing with this truly alien alien, then that's fine. And also, as as you said, Blix, I mean, it takes a lot of effort to come up with a truly original alien. You're not going to want to fill up dozens and dozens of portals full of really, really alien aliens because you're not going to have any time to run your game. You'll be too busy doing research. So if you're going to do this, I recommend that you pick a one place and really do it up great, all right? And then go in and make a truly alien alien, but make sure it can relate to humans with the translation language thing uh, well enough that there's still a story there that's worth doing. And if you can do all that, and it may not be possible, I mean, uh, within the amount of time that you have available for running your game, if you can do that, then please let us know. I want to know about these aliens. I I would be thrilled to hear about these aliens and how alternate they are and how great they are in this story that you wrote that really wowed your players. Let's publish it. Get it into a supplement. I'm not telling anybody not to do this. If they can do it, great. But if you can't spend that kind of time, don't feel like somehow your aliens on a world are somehow inferior and that you're not doing your job as a GM. Your job is to entertain your players. And whatever means you do to do that, that's the right thing to do. Please don't kill yourself for this. Enjoy yourself in this game. The Blizzards are obviously the descendants of some sort of intelligent elephant bifurcated its nose and started developing manipulative members off its trunk. So how do you develop that society where they only have one arm, basically, to do everything with? How, how would you develop their society? Well, you just give them their society and don't worry about it. Don't worry how they got there, like, got there. Bruce said, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes just gloss over and don't worry about Because I will tell you, if you have a player who's really interested about 
that player will tell you how they got there. Hey, let them do the work for you sometimes. You can follow their lead in, in a lot of ways and just and play off of it, especially if you've got somebody who's keen on developing that kind of stuff. And John's right. No small task of trying to come up with how an alien would think if they developed with one arm. You're talking about the whole special field of psychology that deals with that. And if you don't have your doctorate in that and you're not ready to write a thesis paper on you know, cultures that develop with one arm, it's not an easy thing to do. And it definitely gets out of the realms of what you would call a fun element. You know, It becomes work. Now, for some people, that's fun. That's what they consider fun is coming up with that kind of stuff. And again, like Bruce said, if you do that, please share it with the rest of us. If it's something that you find that you're talented at doing, then you know if you want to share it with the rest of the community, it's it it it'd be a great thing, and we would definitely appreciate it, and we would support it. I guess the point is is don't beat yourself up if you can't do it. It's not it's no small task. It's it's no small order. We have a question for J.P. Haley. We all know that electricity and magnetism go away when you go through a portal. Your barriers get drained. Radioactive materials turn into a non-radioactive isotope. But what happens if you got that 50 kilograms of antimatter in a magnetic bubble, and you're going to walk through the portal? What happens? You get to live. You get to live. Because according to the great Poobah himself, uh, Richard Hoka, you walk through, and all the quarks, all the any quarks get flipped over to normal matter quarks. You now have 50 kilograms of matter in that magnetic bottle. The antimatter becomes matter in the non-magnetic bottle. Yes. In that case, it's usually a plasma, which means you now have an expanding plasma inside the bottle. That's okay. Hopefully, it's not explosive. It just depends on how tough that bottle is. Yeah. <laughs> this is not some kind of magical hand-waving thing. This was intentionally programmed into the intelligent, or at least semi-intelligent, fringe system as a safety buffer. So this done on purpose. This isn't some weird effect of the French path. It's a purposeful installation. Yeah. It's to protect the people who are traveling so they don't do something stupid like accidentally bring something that's going to cause them to die instantly through the portal. In game turns, it's a uh, anti-nerf weapon. So you don't nerf your players when they walk through the portal. It's not really crazy super science beyond what's already happening. You're walking through a portal into another dimension to alternate Earths. It's not really much more far-fetched than that. It's not even anywhere near the amount of energy that is involved even in the construction of a portal. Because we know that, that the energy of three black holes and a neutron star, I believe, or was it a, a dwarf, was used to create each portal. Your little 50 kilograms of antimatter is not that hot stuff to it. But to go a little further on this question, John, it says let's say you manage somehow to get a fuel air bomb to work on the fringe pass. Rather than using electricity, you may, I don't know how they're constructed, but let's say you were able to just set off a really big honking explosion on you know, a platform. Just bring in about, oh, about 16 metric tons worth of amyl nitrate. Yeah, whatever it is. Okay, so it goes off. We know that the platform material, if you hit it with a blowtorch, with a plasma torch, as soon as you take it away, it's not cold or hot. It's neutral temperature. It's the same temperature of whatever you touch it with. So it doesn't really absorb or transmit the heat that goes against it. It's a, some super science-type material. Okay, there's a big explosion, which causes all the air to expand out and up. 
Okay, and then of course fresh air is coming down because of the way the gravity pulls air down, so it flushes it out to the side. Uh, it, it could just blow it straight out, of course, you know, into the vacuum area where it's not going to hurt anybody. Uh, and if it goes out far enough, it's going to hit that matter-energy interface and disappear as in a matter-energy conversion where it won't hurt anybody. If it stays within that range, it's going to blow straight up and go up for miles and then suddenly and then turn around and start coming down and mixing again. So the essence is, is that within a minute or two after making this tremendous explosion, the air is going to be relatively clear. None of the portals are going to be affected because it says that they are totally unaffected by anything that might try to hurt them. And the platform itself doesn't transmit heat or cold, so it's going to be the same temperature it was before. If it managed to chelate carbon on the top surface of it, maybe it would have some kind of interesting design that would fade rapidly as the platform readjusted itself to the impact of the explosion and put itself back the way it was. So pretty much whatever you do, it's not going to make too much difference in a very short period of time. You make a big boom. Yes, you can probably get close to like a 16K ton explosion. All you've done is just prove that you're a whiz with explosives, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah. So if someone goes through and causes themselves to blow up in some way, uses some kind of magic or psionic bomb or something like that, if the people outside wait a couple of minutes and go through, it's going to be fine. They should be okay. Might be a little stinky still, but yeah. You know. Yeah, you know, might be a little sticky, depending mm-hmm. upon what kind of explosion it was. That's true. Now it does beg the question. You know, being a fan of uh, kaiju movies, uh, for those who knows the big giant rubber uh, monster movies from Japan, one of the Godzilla movies they had a black hole gun. They would fire, literally fire black holes at Godzilla. I'm thinking about that for a second. Okay, that's something on par with what we're dealing with. With the portals. So what would happen if I were to take this black hole gun, you know, and hang on to the gun long enough so it becomes fringeworthy and now fire it at a ring station, aiming straight for the center? Would the black hole go through or or something else happen? I think the intelligent or semi-intelligent, depending on how you look at it, ring system would uh, destabilize it. It was about to touch the interface. I think the portal would turn itself off, and you'd have to live with that black hole on your own planet. Actually, in the movies, the black holes were small enough that they would hawking away within a few minutes. It's a hell of a weapon to get to fight Godzilla with, I'd say. <laughs> and I assume it didn't do the job? No, they kept missing him. <laughs> it was all near misses, and they kept missing him. <laughs> Darn it, they're so massive. They're, they keep changing the light around him. I can't... I can't quite aim it at Godzilla. I think he's there, but he's actually like 14 feet to the side. I keep missing him. What, did, oh, the, the, did the same company that built the, the Stormtrooper blasters get the contract for that? I guess so. There was a side effect to the weapon. It would temporarily open up a portal to either another time or to another dimension. Okay. Well, fortunately, Fringeworthy is not restricted uh, to the uh, cheesy movie uh, level of, re- of realism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we, we we can actually hold ourselves to a higher standard. Any super science weapon you can think of that could potentially affect a portal, the portal system goes, oh, okay, I'll just turn off. Thank you. I'll just create a warp someplace else. Yeah. Plus, I, I don't want people getting the wrong idea from what I was saying about the, the semi-intelligence of the, of the system. It doesn't necessarily mean that the thing is thinking and it's, and it, and it's actually saying, you know, hey, that's really a nasty effect. I'm going to turn that off. 
Um, you got to remember that the Tamerlan had plenty of time to work with this stuff, and they've been to plenty of worlds. It's very fair to say that they already saw something like that, or maybe saw that weapon before they encountered it. So they could have programmed a fuse-like device into the system, much like your circuit breaker, where you know if something, if you get too much of a surge of something, you know, in the case of a circuit breaker, electricity, uh, the circuit breaker pops, and uh, like Bruce was saying, the portal could just shut off if it if it encounters something like that, and that doesn't take any kind of thought process on the the portal or the station, you know, the the platforms part. That's just built in. It's integral. It's like a reflex. So, yeah, it's like a reflex. So I guess the bottom line is, if you don't want it to work as a game master because it'll unbalance something, then it doesn't. Right. We we already said that in the book that the portals themselves cannot be harmed by anything. All right, so they're they're literally you know an extrusion of fringe space into your world. So you're you're not really affecting them if you apply force to the thing that you think is there. They're not really there. Uh, it's really just a force field. I don't want to use the word crystallized force or something like that. But you know what I'm saying is it is it's a manifestation of this interface between the fringe space and your world. So there's there's nothing you can really do that that really will harm it. Uh, it is mostly there to say, hey, this doesn't seem like a good situation for someone to get onto the fringe paths. You know, th- this is supposed to be engineering tunnels. You're not supposed to bring black holes onto this thing uh, in an uncontained manner. We're not going to let it through. It's a smart system. It's not intelligent. It just simply goes and evaluates the conditions that it sees. It does perceive these conditions. We know that it has the ability to gather information around it because that's how it's able to give you its language on that world. It knows what the people are speaking. It knows enough to be able to deduce uh, cultural references from the words that they're saying so that when you learn, you actually know not only that this word means this, but also which is the right word to use in the right context, just like you would in your own language. So the system is very aware of what's going on around it. So even before some kind of black hole gun was fired at it, it would know that there was a black hole possibility there. I think the real question here is, can I make a weapon that will hurt a portal? The answer is, yeah, but why? You're dealing with an indestructible object. You're just going to slag everything around it, leaving it behind. If you do that, it may just reform because it really wasn't there in the first place. But you're really saying to yourself, my race is smarter than Tamellerns, or or I should say cleverer than the Tamellerns, because it's able to create this device that can destroy this construct of the Tamellerns. And I, I would say, okay, fine, you did that. Now you're trapped on your world, or uh, unless you're in a prime, you know. And and maybe if, if that happened, uh, the portal system would lock down all the portals on your world, and now you're really stuck. So uh-huh. you know, good for you, right? You have, to, you, have to, you have to go out to that system platform and find some more portals to go through, you know. Actually, it made us decide, okay, this world's too unstable. Bye, and all the portals go away. Yeah, you could just simply shift to another universe. You could just say, well, we picked this as the low energy configuration, but maybe the next one up would be better. And we're not going to say that because we said already that the most of the portals and the node that, that the portals are on were created by an automatic node building program machinery, dimensional machinery. So uh, there's no reason for it to be that smart, I don't think. So uh, I would just basically say is that if you manage to break a portal – Okay, you did, but just don't think there's not going to be any flashback on you when you do that. 
Because, John, you already told me the story about what happened when they tried to fix the Rabina portal, which is on Earth. There's actually a portal under the sand. Uh, there's there's a warp there, and it works improperly, and it causes Fringeworthy to basically catch on fire and get knocked unconscious when they try to go through it. But on Earth, if you actually find its location, there actually is a portal there under the sand. You can dig it up, and what does it look like, John? The ring station, the ring is wobbling. And you told me that uh, in one of the uh, campaigns, you guys fixed the portal. Oh, yes. Qaddafi had decided that here's a portal, we can use it. They've got these two massive machines, massive machines, to come along and basically squeeze the portal so it's not wobbling anymore. So there's Qaddafi standing uh, a fair distance away going, Yes, I will have all this. Yes, I will rule the world. Yes, what's that light? And I think the answer was that a bit of the Earth was shaved off at that point (laughs) when the portal decided to, uh, well, fix itself. The portal was now spinning properly, and it worked properly, and everything was glass from horizon to horizon. And it's flat, perfectly flat for 20 miles. Perfectly flat. 40 miles across. (laughs) From horizon to horizon, it was perfectly flat. All the extra mass was gone, and I think it was glass too, but I don't remember that. Yeah, so, and of course, everybody who was in that area is gone. (laughs) They've been reduced to their component atoms and so forth. So that's the kind of power we're talking about and what can happen if you mess with a portal. So, you know, you can fire your black hole device at the portal if you want to, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere near I wouldn't even want to be in orbit over this. And hope your aim's good, because you, cause you really want to hit the, the black surface. You don't want to actually hit the sides. No, remember, it's, that's not a problem, John. It only responds defensively when somebody's going through. Oh, uh, okay. We changed that. No, no, no. I'm not talking about the fact that the, a black hole is a singularity that goes off someplace else. So theoretically, you could puncture the sides of the, of the ring station, of the ring, with a black hole. I don't know. I don't want to be around any place where a ring station pops. Right. Well, yeah. Again, in the sense, if it was somehow to release the energy of three black holes and a uh, neutron star in one location on Earth, I don't think we have to worry about Earth anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty much pretty much gone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, so don't do it, folks. <laughs> it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, anyway, so be, ha- be happy you've got a fringe portal that works right, okay? Yeah, if you that's do, right. And if you don't, well, you know, it's not, there's worse things in the world than trying to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> this has been the Fringeworthy Podcast. So until next time. This is Bruce Sheffer from Atlanta saying, remember, there are millions of worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John from Seattle, and remember, keep your powder dry and keep those cards and layers coming in. And this is Blix. Remember, don't shoot the portals. They shoot back.
No commercial distribution or derivative works are allowed. You must fully attribute this work to Tritag Games. This podcast is solely the property of Tritag Games Incorporated.